971 FM Talk Podcast. The only thing I'm going to need from you guys right now is a cup of coffee. Today's global economy waits for no man. America. Today's global business climate is like, whatever, dude. Politics is a dirty game. I'm not sure we want to play. There are forces here at work that you couldn't possibly understand. You have no idea how high up this goes. Welcome to Wiggins America. Hey, good morning. That'll wake you up, won't it? This is Wiggins America, 97.1 FM Talk, just after 6 o'clock. Thank you so much for being here. So let me tell you a little bit about what we have coming up. Well, in this segment alone, uh, we've got something that I've been sitting on all week because I thought it was such a good little monologue that this guy gave on GBN that was, I think, believe stands for Great Britain News. Uh, as I understand it, this is a news channel in Great Britain that is very popular and as much like Fox News is in the United States, the number one rated news, pro- news uh, station in the United States is Fox News. GBN is similarly looked at in Great Britain, as far as I can tell. I, of course, live here, so I don't view Great Britain news very often. I do view the BBC sometimes. And it's interesting, side point, if you ever watch international news, how they report on American things. We in America don't report on international things nearly as often as the rest of the world reports on what we do. There's a reason for that. It's because we're in charge, and as America goes, so goes the rest of the world in a lot of ways, just like as California goes, so goes the rest of the United States. I think I just admitted that California is running the entire world. Don't really like that. Uh, We're pushing back, though, right? So anyway, as we go this morning, I do want to introduce you to what I think is going to be a regular, regularly occurring segment called The Last Man on Earth, and we're going to look at post-apocalyptic movies, TV shows, literature, stuff like that, because it's a topic I love. And since we're already kind of living it, might as well use it as a mirror to see how much of it is <laughs> reflective of reality. And of course, a lot of it's older and some of it's newer. It's, it's fun to look at the old stuff and see what they were predicting things would look like compared to what they look like now. So we're going to do that at some point in the show. And you're going to listen the whole two hours, right? So nowhere to go. <laughs> Just stay tuned and you'll hear it. So before we get to this clip from this gentleman from GBN, though, <clears throat> I want to set it up a little bit. He's asking the question, who's afraid? Because it seems as if the answer to that question is everybody, including me, including you, right? I mean, I'm not sort of shaken to my core, but the left right now, they seem very, very, very concerned with two things. One, their health, coronavirus, like they, they, they think that it's a pandemic that's, I think, way worse than the numbers would suggest. That's not to minimize people who've died from COVID because it's a real, real thing, but when you lock yourself inside your house, you are unduly afraid of this thing. And when you force other people to do the same, then you are a tyrant. The other people, the other second group that they are afraid of is us. They do not like 
the way the right is pushing back on what they consider to be their safety and security. They think that we're idiots. Um, on the right, we are afraid of tyrannical government and overreach that we're ha- seeing happen not only in the United States, but we're seeing it happen in much of the world, especially the Western world. Australia, you've seen the clips coming out of Australia. It's, it's extremely scary to think that that could be on the horizon for us. I mean, there are people living in Australia who are dealing with it right now, mainly Melbourne, so not the entire country. Uh, we always just say, well, it's it's all Australia, but it's mainly Melbourne, which is the most liberal uh, state, essentially, of, of uh, Australia. So let's get to the first clip of, of this gentleman. He is on GBN. He's talking about people getting rich on this. There's fear in the air. There's no mistaking it. It's made all the more noticeable by the fact Britain has never, not in my memory at least, been a fearful place. And for the longest time, the British have not been a fearful people. I remember unrest and discontent. Of course I do. I remember righteous anger. But I don't remember the smell of fear. I say the strongest smell of fear, not just here but elsewhere in countries of the developed West, is emanating not from the ordinary people but from the leaders leaders of governments, leaders of giant corporations. There are plenty of frightened citizens as well, masked up and isolated, driven to distraction by months, now years of mismanagement, misinformation and propaganda, all of it combining to create a wearying, debilitating sense of constant anxiety and uncertainty. But the strongest smell of fear comes not from those at the bottom of the pile, rather from those at the top. And what are they so frightened of, these governments and leaders? I'll tell you what, they're frightened of their own people. They're frightened of us, and there are a lot of us. It wasn't until the first decade of the 19th century that the population of the world reached a billion. It took another century and a quarter after that milestone for the headcount to double to two billion, and then just 30 years to get to three billion. It's estimated that now we're adding an extra billion people every 15 years or so. There are 8 billion of us now, more people alive at once than ever before. More people means more and more pressure on all the things worth having. Not just toilet paper and diesel, but freedom and space in which to live and roam. While the many queue and squabble over roll and gas for the tank, because that's where the mainstream media is goading us to look, The leaders tell us our troubles are all our own fault anyway. Brexit breaking supply chains, our lifestyles making the planet too hot. All they need is more of our time, they bleat. More of our cooperation, more of our money, just more. But as the line goes in the outlaw Josie Wales, don't pee down my back and tell me it's raining. As well as the leaders, the billionaire elites are fearful too. Billionaires are adding billions to their wealth, not by the decade, but with every week and month of the present crisis. I can imagine it might be frightening to have so much when so many beyond the castle walls have so little or nothing at all, not even hope. I think of a technocrat billionaire and in my mind's eye I get an image of a cat being carried through the crowds on a busy city street inside one of those plastic crates you see in airports looking out at us through the grill with fearful, uncomprehending eyes. I love his use of the word technocrats. That's uh, very, very 2021. 
Uh, we used to call them aristocrats. Now they're technocrats, right? I don't necessarily want to paint all people seeking to make a living or get rich even as evil people. But the fact is, there have been people who have made a tremendous amount of money by controlling the levers of power and using COVID to do it. And he's addressing that. So he goes on here to talk about two groups to watch. And I love this. This is really the point of the whole thing right here. Those who have everything to lose and those who have nothing to lose. Because those who have everything to lose, they are afraid of change. They are afraid of people like us who... I don't want to say I don't have anything to lose, but I feel that way. I don't have anything to lose. If somebody were to say, Ryan, we don't like what you said on the radio, goodbye, my conscience is clear. I am always speaking my conscience, and therefore, I don't have anything to fear. Um, I serve a higher power than a, a corporation, and that, to me, is sort of the point of having nothing to fear, nothing to lose. He talks about that here, that those who have everything to lose are the ones controlling this whole thing. With great wealth comes great anxiety, apparently, as well as fearing the people. Like the leaders do, I think those billionaires don't much like us either. We're like ants and wasps, spoiling what might otherwise be a lovely picnic just for them. Our small lives are petty concerns. Rent, mortgages, health and education are beneath them. More importantly, our lives are made so different by circumstances we're becoming increasingly incomprehensible to them. There are two groups to watch, those with everything to lose and those with nothing to lose. Leaders feeling backed into a corner by the great unwashed often seek safety by demanding and then taking more and more control, for our own good of course, From the beginning, emperors have felt safest when as many people as possible are kneeling down or lying flat on their faces so they might be walked over. It's hard for a person to defend him or herself from a kneeling position or prone, far less fight. Fearful leaders need insulation between themselves and the people and so prefer to hoard everything of value, food, resources, wealth, so they might dole out the crumbs. There's already talk of an end to money as we have known it, to be replaced by something virtual and digital you can neither see nor touch. Imagine a world where it's not you that decides how much of your money you can spend on beer or meat or a holiday, but an algorithm making that decision for you, for your own good. Even the idea of an algorithm deciding what you can or can't buy or what you should or shouldn't buy. I mean, we're already there, aren't we? We always joke about, oh, I mentioned a baseball glove the other day, and all of a sudden I'm seeing ads for baseball gloves. There are algorithms doing that, and we all know it's happening. The question is, how far are we willing to let that happen? If it's just because they want to help you buy stuff that you want to buy and it's easy, I guess that's okay. But at some point you go, man, there are people controlling these algorithms And if they are determining what every individual likes to buy and how often you buy things and who you talk to and where you go, that's scary. And it gets so big that it almost gets to the point where you're like, I don't want to address this. It's it's so intrusive that it's hard to fathom. And he's talking about that a little bit in this very, very last clip here that we'll get to before a break. Uh, and specifically, he goes into talking about Australia and the way that they've used this. You know, they're, I don't know that they've fully implemented this, but what they're trying to do is use facial recognition technology so that you have to, using your phone, 
dial in at any given time, take a picture of your face to prove where you are so the government knows that they've controlled your location, that you are quarantining properly from COVID, which we talked about at the beginning of this segment. The numbers do not warrant this. If we were in the middle of an actual zombie apocalypse where you're trying to keep people from instantly dying and turning and eating each other, that's one thing. But from this disease, especially the younger you are, the healthier you are, shouldn't shouldn't you want to be going outside and taking walks? That's what you see happening in Melbourne, Australia that's unbelievable. And if you think, oh, they're just doing it for people's safety, you're you're not very wise. I don't I want to use a worse word, but you're not very wise. Because if you think that they are doing this for people's safety, that's crazy. They're not. This is tyrannical government happening before our eyes. He also throws in, in this last clip here, a reference to Trump. See if you can pick it up. Fear makes the fearful lash out. Australia makes for shocking viewing right now. Black clad enforcers dressed and armed more like stormtroopers than police and beating citizens with sticks, firing rubber bullets at them, kicking and kneeing them while they lie pinned and helpless on the ground, men throttling women. My family and I spent time in Australia. My kids went to school there and learned and sang the national anthem of those days. I clearly remember the line, Australians all let us rejoice for we are young and free. Not so much now, apparently. Is Australia the canary in the coal mine, the weather vane showing which way the wind is blowing? Your guess is as good as mine. What we have now is an unholy alliance between fearful leaders and contemptuous billionaire technocrats. Together they have the tools to take all and keep all. Never in the field of human relations has so much been taken from so many by so few. I say the best leaders are those the people barely notice. Those who, without fanfare or hope of immortality, defend freedom and let people go about their business unmolested. Those that seek praise for their efforts are tolerable too, as long as they keep the lights on at the same time as preening for the cameras. The leaders, the people, and then history do not forgive are those that make themselves feared and then despised. Remember at all times that your life is your own, and your hopes and dreams weigh the same as those of any emperor or billionaire. They're frightened. You can smell it. Smells like victory. Hold the line. Yeah, it's good stuff, and isn't it? He he does reference Trump a little bit there. He doesn't say his name, uh, but he references people who should government leaders who we shouldn't even know really who they are. They should be transparent. They shouldn't be seeking names for themselves. Um, and then he references Trump and says, even when they do, as long as they're sticking to these policies, I don't care. It's kind of where we all landed, didn't it? Didn't we? Not to turn this back onto Trump, but uh, it is always interesting to me when you hear people from other countries referencing what's happening in this country. This, of course, is not entirely that. This is about the whole world, and he's specifically speaking in Great Britain. I thought that was great. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sticking with us. A little bit of a long segment, but I thought it was worth it. More Wiggins America coming up next on 97.1 FM Talk. Wiggins America. 97.1 FM Talk. Thanks for joining us for Wiggins America. I'm Ryan Wiggins. And one of the things that's been in the news, but not necessarily 
the top news headline. Although this week, financials have been in the news just simply because of the crazy, crazy amount of spending we're maybe about to do. Uh, But crypto is one of those things that's sort of always on the back burner, at least for me in the back of my mind, as somebody who has some little investments here and there. I kind of think I understand the world of it, but I wanted to get somebody on who did. His name is Stephen Mathai Davis. He's co-founder and CEO of Q.ai, robo-investing platform. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, and thanks for having me on. So let's talk a little bit about just the reason that this is in the news, because it's out there. Why is China so afraid of crypto? Right. Uh, Well, I think it comes down to macroeconomic policy. It's all about controlling capital flows by letting uh, crypto or digital assets run unfettered within the informal economy, at least in China. It it undermines their efforts by the CCP to control capital flows, meaning keeping capital within the country. So is this why China has created its own crypto? And, you know, do people trust that they're not going to manipulate that? Well, one, they are going to manipulate it, right? Yeah. Because every central bank manipulates their currency. And two, uh, I no, I don't know if people are going to trust it for that purpose. Uh, it really comes down to it really comes down to controlling the balance of payments, right? And that's always been an issue with China that they've had a leaky balance of payments, and they want to keep capital within the country, which simply is referring to investors moving money offshore into other vehicles. So, is that why governments in general are afraid of cryptocurrencies? Is because they can't regulate them as easily, and you know why is that? Yeah, that's a good question, right? It's about regulation, but that's probably too simplistic a view. A government or the central bank, but the government in general finds its strength and its ability to manipulate a currency towards fiscal or monetary policy. And you do that through the balance of payments. Uh, The rise of cryptocurrencies is a way to circumvent that, right? So that's why we might use Bitcoin as a way to make payments cross-border to somebody in another country. So we were paying somebody in, I don't know, Brazil or India for some services or goods that they were producing for us. We pay them in Bitcoin. It's great. The governments don't want us doing that because now we've completely circumvented the fiat currency, which is their way of controlling capital flows. Right, right. So we're talking with Stephen Mathai Davis this morning here on Wiggins America, co-founder and CEO of Q.ai, robo-investing platform. So are there legitimate concerns? Because I, coming from sort of a, at least economically, a libertarian uh, point of view, view currency or, or cryptocurrency as something that's very good for the reasons that you just said. You know, the, it, there's less government oversight of it. Are there legitimate concerns for people even like me in that there is less, you know, the, the oversight almost, the lack of oversight could be a bad thing because there's more money laundering or crime that could take place with it? Yeah, that's a good question, right? First of all, crime and money laundering happens with fiat currency all the time, right? That's why we're so heavily regulated, and it still happens. Um, I tend to have a libertarian leaning myself in terms of economic policy, because I don't think overregulation and too much government intervention into these types of things is good. It leads to other unintended consequences. So if you take a step back with cryptocurrencies, the reason it's been a force for good is that it's been a, I wouldn't call it, it hasn't been a wealth divider. It's been one that's been bringing wealth to the average person, right? The the ability to pay and realize property rights within a blockchain ledger is a very positive thing. But think about 
the issues with the informal economy, uh, blockchain and digital assets really address that in a very positive way. So is the U.S. government, I should say, I asked you really about all governments, but we're in the U.S. So what, what steps is the U.S. government taking to kind of tamp down Bitcoin or, or are they? Because I've seen it show up on my tax form in the last couple of years and that used to not be there. Yeah, I don't see them tamping it down, actually. I think the U.S. government, at least the SEC, under Chairman Gensler, has been taking a more, I'd say, open-minded approach to it. I, I think they do want to have regulation in there so that the average retail person is not ripped apart. But I haven't seen anything in the U.S. that would suggest it's tamped down. Quite the opposite. It seems like there's a movement towards formalizing it as part of the economy, which is the smart thing to do, by the way. Do hmm. you think that's... Uh, any? Well, By the way, just give you a tangible example. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, any one of us, li- anyone is living in suburbia, man. You know, when we go buy a house, it's it's a nightmare, right? Because you've got to go get the deed, then you've got to go get the insurance, you've got to do all kinds of stuff. Imagine all this with blockchain power; it'd be instantaneous. There's no reason all this stuff should be happening. Well, yeah, that's blockchain that's a good and- point. And let me ask you this, based on on what you just said there: Do you think that blockchain currencies like Bitcoin or whatever will actually make that jump from being you know, right now more of an asset that people invest in to being a currency that people are actually using? I think it's a slow movement, but it inextricably will be leading to that. You can already start to make purchases in Bitcoin. I think that's going to be a generational shift, though. I think younger folks are going to be more comfortable using digital assets. Case in point, you know, I come from a family of Wall Street folks. My father walks around with cash all the time. That's, that's, that's generational. He's in the 70s. I, myself, I'm totally digital. So I'm an older millennial, but everything I do now is totally electronic. I'm more comfortable in this environment. So I think that's a generational shift that's going to happen. And remember, 50% of the population is below the age of 40. It's just inevitable. The digital economy, the U.S. alone right now is, what, about 10% of GDP? As that begins to expand, which it will, obviously, um, these types of things will become even more mainstream. We're speaking with Stephen Mathai Davis, co-founder and CEO of Q.ai, robo-investing platform. Um let me ask you this, as you look across the world and you look you know, down the future and, and try to predict what's going to happen, is this a situation where governments who are willing to embrace crypto, like you said the U.S. kind of is, and maybe more open societies, at least I hope we're open, <laughs> um, are going to yeah. uh, leave the more closed societies like China behind on this? Is this another sort of divider where you have more open societies that are going to be better off in the future because they're willing to embrace this? That's a good question. I don't know if we can jump leap that far forward. I do think it's going to be a great provider or driver for other types of developing emerging markets, whether we're talking about countries in Africa or Latin America, where these types of currencies and digital assets will lead to better wealth growth, not just for the upper class, but for the middle class and the upper middle class through the use of property rights and things like that. So I think it's going to lead to definitively more wealth accumulation and improvement in lifestyles for many people globally. I I can't comment about whether or not a closed economy like China would uh, be left behind. There's so many other factors driving Chinese growth and GDP that it's hard to say what would happen. I don't think it, I I don't think trying to close this off is going to work by the way. Yeah. neither here nor there. Well, Stephen, let me ask you this before we run out of time. It's because this is, we, we've kind of been in the weeds a little bit, but for the average person who's heard a lot about crypto and they know that it exists, they know the word bit, Bitcoin, they might even know the word blockchain. 
<clears throat> what mm-hmm. what what does the future look like for the average person? You know, they're they're looking at this and going, how does this affect me today? Will this affect me tomorrow? What do I <laughs> what do I need to know today to get me ready for tomorrow? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I think in the two factors, right? So let's talk about just our lives in general. This idea of using a digital ledger is going to change the way we buy homes, the way we buy financial goods, anything and everything. Your entire lifestyle is going to change. And it's going to change for the better, right? Because the paperwork's going to disappear. We're going to be able to make instantaneous purchases, exchange of goods without any problem at all. So and when I think about blockchain, just for the average person, just Imagine a world where everything's going to be totally digital, where you no longer have to use paperwork. And everyone will sign up for that one, right? Yeah. And, uh, and it'll be more secure and safe. Heck, you know, just give, here's a great idea. You know, you have people talking about uh, blockchain dating apps, addressing issues of security and safety for people. And we all know about it with online dating. Blockchain's going to help with that, unrelated to financial services. It, there's a lot of good that could come out of it. I, I think from the investing side, for those people who are beginning to invest, this is going to become viewed as a new type of asset class in some ways, what venture capital was viewed as 20 years ago. Yeah, I've actually and, heard of blockchain being talked about in the uh, in terms of securing voting, you know, in that it's, it's completely anonymous, yeah. so people could do it, but it's also completely secure, so you couldn't manipulate it. I think that's very interesting, too. That's a really cool one, yeah. That's another way. Uh, Stephen Mathai Davis, thank you so much for joining this morning. Uh, little plug, you know, Forbes just did what? They endorsed you or what? Uh, well, Forbes has actually been our strategic backer. So we're being incubated by Forbes Media. Okay. Obviously, Forbes is pre- preparing to go public in a few months. And we are being incubated in, as we're in beta as we're preparing to come out. And one of the things we're trying to do is bring institutional grade investing, AI investing to the average person. And the whole goal here in this time about wealth inequality is bringing the tools people need to really start addressing the wealth inequality gap that's occurred, which is driven by a lack of really sophisticated investment tools. The company is called Q.AI. If you want to check them out, Stephen Mathai Davis, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much. Wow. Wiggins America. Yeah, it's one of those topics that you kind of don't know. It's out there. You know you got to deal with it at some point. So if you can get a bit of information every now and then from listening to a show like this. I hope that maybe helps. I'm Ryan Wiggins. This is Wiggins America. I've got some really interesting audio from some NBA players, separate NBA players. So you've probably heard about the Andrew Wiggins controversy, but, uh, partly because his last name is Wiggins and my last name is Wiggins. And so we like to talk about it on the Andy Fry Show and on this show. Uh, but we're going to bring that to you in the next hour. So stick around for that because it's it's politics meets sports in a way that I, I don't like but we're having to do it. We're having to have these conversations because politics has infiltrated everything because the government's so big. Stick around. Wiggins America. Wiggins America. Well, we're following the unfolding drama that is the spending bill slash infrastructure bill slash government funding bill slash debt ceiling limit. If you're getting lost in all that jargon, join the club. I think part of the I think they want you to get lost in that jargon so that you don't even know what we're talking about. So they apparently have funded, let me try to break this down a little bit. Apparently they have funded the government through the end of the year ish, right around there. They did so apparently though through some magic tricks and they did not raise the debt ceiling. 
that's good because that still means that Republicans have leverage. They weren't so dumb that they decided to punt on the debt ceiling. That's really good news. Of course, they're in the minority, though, barely, especially in the Senate, but also close in the House, where they don't have necessarily complete control over what happens because these bills, unlike most, can be passed through what's called reconciliation, which means they need just simple majorities and they don't need... uh, The Republicans can't filibuster them, basically. So Democrats can do this by themselves. And that's where we are right now. We, we don't know whether they're going to pass. There's so much consternation across the aisles on these things. Democrats can't agree with themselves. You have the progressive wing of the House, the sort of the squad, the AOC people, which are numerous. It's beyond the squad, which is the technically like four or five, maybe six people if you include our own Cori Bush in there. It includes more like a dozen to two dozen people at this point, just for this bill anyway. And they're fighting with the more moderate wing of the Democrat Party, which is the progressive wing is more numerous than the moderate wing at this point, because there's only about four or five people who would be considered moderates who are opposed to this gigantic government spending that's happening. So what's on the line here? It's nothing short of basically moving full into socialism. So all of us who've been saying for a long time, let's not do that. We're moving towards socialism. Let's not do that. And we don't feel the the heat of it until later. It's later. The stuff that we're feeling now, the supply chain shortages, the worker shortages, the inflation, all this is stuff that happens with inflation. And God help us if we actually pass this bill. Now, Joe Manchin's come out and said he wouldn't pass something more than $1.5 trillion, as if that's, oh, great, only $1.5 trillion. You know, this is, that's apparently the bargain that we're going to get out of this thing. But even so, there's stuff in it that I mentioned yesterday. I can't believe that somebody like Bernie Sanders, who's out there touting the biggest government possible as the solution to the little guy's problems, can, with a straight face, look at the country right now and say, oh, well, all these problems we're facing is because government isn't big enough. It's amazing. I mean, these people are so disconnected from the reality of actual economics. And I'm not talking about deep economics. I'm not talking about the stuff we were talking about 15 years ago saying, oh, this is coming, this is coming. We're talking about the stuff that's here right now that you can see in front of your own face. When you print so much money that your money loses value, your money doesn't go as far. Everything goes up in price. That's happening. It's not hard. Yet, the people in power like Bernie, and I mentioned him specifically because, A, he doesn't seem to understand even, even grade school economics. I've had conversations with my daughter where she said, she's seven years old. She said to me one time in the car, Dad, why can't we just grow food and give it to everybody for free? And I was like, honey, that's actually a wonderful idea. I'm glad that you're asking me that question because when you're in grade school, you're supposed to think those things. And I explained to her very quickly, well, how would the people who grew the food, how would they get their needs? How would they pay for their house? How would they, you know, buy supplies for the food? Oh, well, I don't know. They, I guess they'd have to get another job. Yeah, so honey, you're advocating for somebody to do two jobs. You'd have to do two jobs to cover for somebody else who was working no jobs, who wanted to eat for free. She got it really quick. It's really easy. It's not hard. You're supposed to have that heart when you're in grade school, maybe even high school. Beyond that, you're not supposed to then go into indoctrination centers where they hold your eyes open like clockwork orange and, and, and teach you 
the ills of capitalism and praise the virtues of socialism so much that they actually detach you from reality. But, you know, they've got you in kind of a bind there because college is detached from reality. College is where you just mass up all kinds of debt and then you don't have to pay it back for a long time. And maybe the government will even pay it off for you. Hey, what a utopia. Eventually, though, those of us who are saying that you will run out of money are proven right. I went to Iceland a few years ago. and it's, it's interesting because the United States, we're able to weather these storms better than anybody in the world, partially because we're so big that, you know, you take a shot at us and it hits us in the leg. Well, we can keep going. You take a shot at a smaller nation, you hit them in the leg, they stumble and fall because they just can't, they can't take that kind of abuse the way that we can take. We can abuse our own economy pretty bad and still come out on top. Partially, not just because we're so big, but we are the biggest. So the whole world looks to us. The dollar is still the reserve currency. It's less so than it used to be, but it still is the reserve currency. And so we can kind of absorb this stuff. Well, now you know how bad it is because we're not absorbing it anymore. We're starting to see actual supply chain losses and you know, people not going to work because they, they just choose not to. Um, you know, the child tax credit is still in effect and unemployment outside of federal is still in effect and lots of handouts like that. They're increasing by 30% the amount you get when you're on food stamps. Well, guess what? The, the higher that is, the less incentive there is to work for your food because you can get more money for food if you don't work. So anyway, I mentioned Iceland because a nation like that is small and you know we look to nations that are smaller for smaller sample sizes because it's easier to see the effects of these things on people like we look to Israel right now for covid data small sample size highly vaccinated population we it showed very very early on that cases were breaking through vaccines at the same time we were saying that could never happen to us and of course that has happened to us like crazy so you look to nations like that for small sample sizes. Sweden's been one that you could look to and say they've actually remained open and their numbers are better than most European nations, most nations, in fact. So why aren't we doing what they're doing? It's because the people in power don't care. They would rather keep us locked down. So I mentioned Iceland again because their economy is very, very small. In 2008, in the, I guess, the housing bubble that crashed here and then affected the whole world economy, they were in deep trouble. So we, my wife and I, <laughs> took advantage of their economic woes and went there because their their inflation, their their money is so it's kind of misvalued that it was way up versus the dollar. 2008 happened, their money crashed, so it was a lot cheaper to vacation there. Now it's gone back up just because it's a popular vacation spot. So we kind of hit it at the right time, and I don't know if we could even afford to go there now. But in 2012, we could, and we, <laughs> I wasn't in politics, I wasn't in political talk radio or whatever we call this, talk radio. We can talk about whatever we want. I'm going to talk about last person on earth stuff later. Movies, <laughs> not actual last person on earth. Um, I was talking to our, I guess you'd call them landlords, you know, there was Airbnb we were using, and we stayed at a couple different places. Well, we, we found out that the couple different places we were staying were all the same owner. And so they are very social, and they would sit down with us at night, and we and a couple of the other couples that were staying at these basically hostels, they were like glorified hostels, 
would just sit around and kind of talk. And we met a couple from California while we were there, a couple from Russia. They were drunk all the time and they wanted us to drink with them all the time. But friendly, we talked to them quite a bit, although big language barrier, a couple from Germany and then our landlords, the people who own the place. And we were asking a lot of questions of the landlords, like, why do you guys own so many places? You know, is it, is it a good business here? And they said, well, yeah, but the problem is that we have to own so many of them to get over the hump of sort of the government funding. And they did not connect that to the, a problem being with socialism. Because I said, oh, it's like socialism, right? <clears throat> and they said, well, yes, but we appreciate all that. Like, we, we like all the government programs. And I said, but you have to work extra hard to make it because you have to get past sort of the threshold of where it would be more, val- more advantageous to you to not work. And they said, well, yeah, that's true. And that's frustrating. But we still advocate for social, big, big social programs. So there's a, there's a huge disconnect in their heads to what they were experiencing economically. If the threshold for having to work was lower, they, owning the same amount of buildings, would be better off. So I, I, I'm just surprised. It's not just an American problem. Obviously, Europe deals with tons of socialism. Ireland, very, very socialist nation. Have some friends who have family roots roots there. They deal with the same thing. It's like they all complain about the government and complain about their financial situation, <clears throat> that they can't get ahead, that the government's kind of keeping everybody down. But then when it comes time for the rubber to meet the road, they say, well, but we like all the social programs. <laughs> because when we get addicted to these things, we don't realize who's providing them. It's you. It's your tax dollars. And it sort of lowers the quality of life for everybody. Because less and less people work, less and less people produce anything, there's less creativity, and everything goes down. We're dealing with that now. We're going to deal with it worse if we pass a spending bill. Thank God it looks like we might not. We'll have to see what the week ahead looks like. This is Wiggins America. Thanks for tuning in. More on the way. Get more at 971talk.com.